Hello, Bookstew viewers, those of you who are poetry lovers and even those of you who are poetry haters are going to be very fascinated by my first poetry guest or my first guest who is an actual living poet. Um, it's kind of hard to think of, po for me, to think of poetry as something that's alive since it tends to be something you study in school and in my case, reluctantly. But I must admit that um, meeting David in person and reading his book of poems has kind of converted me, and I'm hoping that you'll be right along with me as we enjoy the saga of how you become a poet and listen to uh, some of David's poetry. So may I introduce to you David I, who is coming to us from his bucolic cabin in Catskills, New York, uh, away from Corona, and you can see we're not wearing mat. We don't have to wear masks. Um, David, welcome to Book Stew, and I know that you're supremely confident that every person watching is going to become a poetry convert. Thank you for that confidence, which I don't share, but great. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> thank you for that that lead-in. How does one become a poet, and when? At what point in your life? Did you, did you think of yourself as a poet? Quite late by most standards. Uh, I, I was an actor for a long time, um, 17 years professionally in New York City, mostly. Uh, so language was always in my head, but uh, as a creator of, of words, or, you know, I, it, it came to me in my 40s. Um, I was having of doubts about whether I wanted to continue my acting career and I thought well now's the time to think about what else I might do and I went to Provincetown to the Fine Arts Work Center and I took a couple of workshops that changed my life um, and literally kind of overnight went from being an actor to being a writer. Uh, How did tell us a little bit about the workshops because that's pretty dramatic to go from acting to not being sure of what you wanted to do and then into poetry. So it took me a, a kind of a year to shape from nonfiction to poetry. Like the, I, I kind of got, I went down a, a, a narrower path in a way. Uh, so I took a class with Richard McCann, summer of 2003. That was in nonfiction, essentially memoir, uh, writing from your life. Um, he uh, taught at American for a long time and is a long time uh, teacher at the Fine Arts Work Center. Uh, and that to be, I don't know, it was exactly what I was looking for. And the night before I left for Provincetown, my acting manager called and said that he decided not to renew our contract. Ah, so serendipity. Yeah. Uh, sometimes if you listen really closely, you can hear what the universe has, ah, <laughs> has to say. Ah. And sometimes you don't like what it says, but it sounds like in this case you were open to, okay, now I'm ready to try something else. Yeah. It was the only thing that ever appealed to me other than acting. Uh, and, and oddly, when I was working as an actor was when I, and being paid, that was when I would have time to write. Because I'd be, for instance, I remember being at Hartford Stage and... Uh, you know, once the show opens, you have your days free or a lot more time free, and that's when I would write. Um, so anyway, I studied with Richard, got amazing feedback from a 
bunch of really seasoned writers. They were mostly professional writers who were trying a new kind of writing, uh, many of them. And to be accepted as as a fellow writer was just, it felt really satisfying and, and, and like a community that I'd never really experienced as an actor. Uh, well, when you were an actor, did you ever, because acting, of course, is words and... Um, you know, when I think of, of the poetry I love, it's really the language of plays, and as, especially, of course, Shakespeare and how, you know, I like the writing of his play, in his plays more than I like his sonnets and stuff like that. Um, because oh, it seems, because, you know, I love theater and, and, but to me, everything he writes within, within that realm is, is poetry of a sort. So mm -hmm. how do you, so... Do you think you think like this is going to sound silly? Do you think in poetry? Like, are you when you're thinking? I mean, is there a difference between thinking in nonfiction and thinking in poetry? I think there is. I think there is. I think, and and it's interesting. It's I also write nonfiction to a lesser degree, and it's it's always interesting to me where a particular experience seems to need the expansion um, and the detail of nonfiction and when it wants to focus on the language, as you just said, of poetry. Um, and and I, I do find myself thinking in lines sometimes. Um, and, and, and I often, not always, get up and write them down. Um, uh, I, I need to do more of that, uh, as we all do. Do you have lines? I know a lot of writers I speak to have uh, their file cabinet of bad ideas or their file cabinet of unfollowed up uh, novels, short stories. Do you have uh, an, an old Ikea dresser <laughs> with bad poetry in it? I have the virtual uh, uh, form of that um, on, on my laptop in a Word file. I can't even, it's probably 100 pages at this point of a line, a title, sometimes a chunk, sometimes, and some of that stuff I've, you know, been able to mine for something that's decent, but a lot of it is breakup stuff, <laughs> so, <laughs> which I must. Go ahead, uh, go ahead. I of the poems that you singled out uh, last week, I guess there were three breakup poems and a death poem. I just wanted to. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what is? Is this not the right? the right time to be bringing those poems out and those no, feelings out. But um, I, I guess, uh, why don't we get into uh, reading them and then maybe we'll take a break after each poem and, and discuss them because I'll, I'll share with you what caught me about them and you can uh, talk to us about what you were thinking when you wrote them. Okay, great. Uh, um, shall I start with with your Joni Mitchell favorite? Yeah. Okay. So um, the title of this one is The First Line. Um, so I will just continue right from the title into the poem. And many of your listeners will recognize the last lines, which I stole. <laughs> <laughs> a blonde woman dances in a biker bar, a young mare or marionette, stringless, loose-limbed, mesmeric, barefoot on the barroom floor. I hope she has no man. Not that I want to be hers. I only hope she lives without a man's weight. 
She sways light and cutoffs, sheer white blouse off the shoulder, long hair straight back to 68, pouring over and through her uplifted arms and hands, the band's efforts vindicated, purified by her body's ministrations. Something at the base of my neck stretches her direction, but my feet, planted, leaden, help me, the band sings, I think I'm falling. It's amazing to say to take a song and an image, which, you know, that I, I think out of all her works, Help Me is the one that like almost made it up to number one or did make it up to number one. So it's one of her most popular songs. So and it the, your poem evokes a setting that she uh, didn't share in the song. So you're kind of uh, broadening the mm. song into um, into did you actually see this in in person or did you see it in your mind's eye i actually this i would say about 90 percent of my poems are right from my own life either something i witnessed or something that happened to me or a person uh there's a lot of invention too and liberties taken but but this one i was in a in a bar in a roadside bar in Pennsylvania, Quakertown, Pennsylvania. I was doing a show one summer and we went out one night and there was this woman and just, it, it just threw me back. I mean, I was kind of too young for Woodstock, but it just threw me back into something about her was just, I, I couldn't take my eyes off of her. I hope I, she didn't notice that. <laughs> Oh, I imagine she's out there somewhere, and this was how many years ago, and like, when she's a grandmother, she'll never know that you saw her and wrote this tribute to her. It's kind of sad. I wish you had like just dashed it off in the bar and given it to her. Right. Oh, it took years to, to come up with. I mean, that's the thing. It's, it's, exper it's my life experience, but then what you do with it and the, the crafting and the shaping, that that takes a lot longer than, and I think sometimes longer than in prose, I think. I mean, at least for me, because I'm always torturing the poem into what I think is going to be its best container. Can um, you over-torture it? I certainly think you can. I would like to think that I stop short of, of that, because I don't want to wring out the the initial impulse. I don't want to ever get rid of what prompted the poem to begin with, which for me was some kind of emotional experience. And that's what I'm trying to share with the reader is, 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 is an emotional way in. Um, so, so yeah, she'll never know. This well, is about 94. Maybe, maybe she'll be watching books too. Actually, it's, it's funny you mentioned Quakertown because I actually have family in Quakertown, Pennsylvania, okay. which is, too funny, but unless this woman lives at the bar, <laughs> yeah. it's unlikely. But it's it's really nice to think about it. I mean, I'd sure love to think that uh, some somewhere along the line, some poet saw me and there was something about me <laughs> that had them write such you know beautiful lines that really grab you. I think even if the song "Help Me" wasn't um, a basis for it, it's still a very evocative home of place and of and of a, a woman yeah yeah and 
and and you've caught me. I mean, I, that part I completely made up. I mean that they weren't playing a Joni Mitchell song. It was a <laughs> uh, it but, was a rock and roll band. But. but that's okay. I mean, that's you know that's what it it brought into your head. So um, and it resonated the, with you, and so I, it did. I picked the. Um, so when so when do you know? Do you have any poems you've worked on for like years and years, or gone back to like when do you know? that it's done and you're not and it would be wrong to keep working on it such a good question and i have help you know i i went i did so i did the the workshop in 2003 with richard and then i came back the very next summer and studied uh with robin becker a poet from pennsylvania uh taught at penn state for many years just a fantastic uh week of uh it was uh, a workshop in prosody that is the forms poetry forms and so every day we would have be assigned to write something in another form and and that really lit me on fire the the puzzling and the the math and sometimes sometimes of all right how i got 14 lines let's say it's a sonnet and i only have let's say 10 syllables per line what what do i not get to say you know what what Every syllable becomes so important. So what um, do you what do you cut out that is more than just as much as what you can put in? That's right. And it, and it so adverbs tend to go. You know, any ly words tend to go. So you try to strengthen your verbs and you try to strengthen the nouns. You know, you try to make be as evocative as you can without having to then describe the description or the you know to. Um, modify the verb. You try to uh, just be pithy, you know, with with what you do, ha what you do put on the page. So, do you prefer? I mean, what we used to call—I don't know if they still do—free verse to uh, writing in a form. Do I prefer it? No. Uh, but are most of my poems free verse? Yes. But that is, they don't rhyme. There or they don't rhyme at the end. You know, I often one of the ways a poem can cohere is to use internal rhymes so that the sounds, as you said, the language, the music is 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 even on an unconscious level working. Uh, and even in a, a, a what is observably a free verse poem, I'll give myself limits like numbers of syllables per line. Like I'll mm. say, OK, I can go over 10. Uh, some limiting factor that makes me make choices, um, which is, I think, one of the one of the reasons I respond to poetry uh, as as a writer of it um, is it's like somebody I'm stealing this from somebody, but uh, likened it to a painter. If you don't have the edge of a canvas, you just paint for the rest of your life, on and on and on to the left and to the right. You, you need the confinement. And so that, that I find very fruitful. Um, when you were in theater, did you do musical theater or like straight plays? Both, pretty, pretty even mix. So I, one thing I've always, I'm not a big fan of musicals generally. I would rather see a straight play because I find the song, the sudden bursting into song on the subway type of musical very, very <laughs> distracting. But, I, uh, so many times when I was younger, 
a song lyric would just catch me and I always had like a notebook and I would try to um, puzzle out the lyrics if I couldn't understand what the singer was saying because we didn't have the internet then. And um, so I loved songs, but somehow I never saw that as loving poetry. But yet, mm. you know, most, would you describe most musical, like let's take Hamilton, for example, the most obvious example. <clears throat> Isn't Hamilton full of poetry? Absolutely it is. Absolutely it is. And something I'm just learning now, because I'm, I'm shifting in a way back into theater, because I'm, I'm writing a piece for the theater now, uh, or attempting to, and there is a big difference between a poem, which has to stand on its own merits with only the language and the words, and a song whose words get carried by the music underneath them. So it's a whole different, um, I don't want to say skill, but it's, it, the genres are different in ways that I'm just, I'm just learning now. Uh, in Hamilton, there's a mix of songs and the spoken, you know, the, the, hit, the rap, and I think the, the rap lyrics are probably in a way more poetical than the songs because they have to be because your ear only has the spoken word with the rap, you know, with the hip hop. Uh, whereas in the songs, the emotional, you've got the, the, the music underneath it to kind of propel it forward uh, in a different way. So then can a song, because of the, um, because when you're watching a song, let's say on, in a play, in a musical, and the music is, has to grab you just as much as the words do, if not more, mm -hmm. can you write a crappier song than you can po a poem because there's less specific <laughs> attention to the words? I'm going to change your word crappy <laughs> to uh, serviceable. Ah, so, wow. yes, and that's what the thing I'm learning. I'm reading, um, you know, I, I think the greatest 20th century musical theater composer, Stephen Sondheim. I'm reading, he's got two thick books out um, that are all about his lyrics that from like every show he ever wrote. And they include the lyrics and then he comments on them and he's embarrassed by some of them and some of them he tells you why they're good and sometimes you know why why he was young and why he should have done something else it's really it's candid and i'm learning that uh an overwritten song is not a good song like the the lyrics can be too poetical and then it's it's not serviceable it's not as effective as a simpler lyric on top of a beautiful melody that must be um very instructive to be reading that book because I mean he's not he's known for being you know the greatest living songwriter and some people say you know one of the top three ever but to hear because you know you don't get to hear the the classics of you know you don't I don't think that anyone sat down with Rogers and Hammerstein and Lerner and Lowe and those guys and said okay how did you put your lyrics together right yeah it's great it's, it's fantastic. And I, I learned so much in just the foreword to the first book about the difference between a poem and a song, which gets exactly at what you're talking about. It's not that it's crappy, but it's, it's, it's simpler often. And so the, it lets the story, because a song has a job in a show, it's gotta carry the story forward. 
at least in in the 20th like in the later latter part of the 20th century until now it used to be where songs were much more standalone because they came out of vaudeville oh. uh and they didn't have to do anything they could just be a moment of fluff and that is still exists of course but i mean look at hamilton everything in there is moving us forward right. you know um and every sondheim show uh except for well it's not his show but west side story you know they cut in the most recent version i feel pretty because it didn't do anything. Yeah, and that's he, true. Yeah, he okayed that. You know, he was always kind of embarrassed about that song. <laughs> but it's but it's such an earworm, you know, that really it is. all it all is. the West Side Story songs stick, but that one, you know, I have this mental picture of Natalie Wood lip-syncing on, her, you know, in the in the dress shop, but okay, yep. but let's move on to your next poem that you're going to read for us which um, creates a completely different mood. Uh, and one that that I spent a lot of, it went back and forth on the form, it rhymed at one point, it did all kinds of stuff, and, and I settled on this free verse, but you might hear sounds within the, the lines. Uh, and it, I mean, the funny thing is, I'm sitting on my back porch in the Catskills, and it literally happened maybe 30 yards from here. The room where it happened, right? The room where that exactly, or the non <laughs> in this case. Um, the title I finally settled on after many tries is Raptor. On my hands and knees in the woods below the house, I'm rummaging, looking to introduce the wild shrub I pilfered from the grove down the hill. There where the brook meets the wider creek, the rhododendron are taller than I am, bear trunks thick as an arm, Oval leaves spread like hands in the understory. I have never felt more alone. But soon I sense and stand to face at 20 feet and bearing down talons, beak, and wings four feet across. At 10 feet, no more, the startled bird pulls up and perches. Red-tailed hawk. We regard each other for minutes. I, the more astounded. With a slight contraction, the hawk pushes off and glides downhill, noiseless. On all fours on the rich forest floor, I've returned to roots and rock, clearing a nook of last fall and underneath the fall before, each layer more earth, less leaf than the last. I reason that worrying the dry leaves must have sounded from a height like nesting, scurry, but hawks hunt open fields. Their eyes and ears are keen. How to explain this? We are never alone. That one really got me. Um, um, because the picture of the I mean, man versus wild, tame man versus wild beast, but also your description of the understory. And, you know, I, it puts me in mind to the book that a lot of people have read called The Overstory, which is all about yeah. trees. You're dealing with, you know, what feeds trees. And uh, I, I, I just think it must have been a, such a startling moment that the minute that the hawk left, you must have run for the cabin and said, pen, paper, quick, quick, quick. 
Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, how many encounters like would anyone ever have in their life like that? To um, and you wouldn't even want a camera because that would ruin the moment. You know, you would have to like have to keep it in your head until you could find a way to to express it in the in the in the just best possible way. I love this poem. Thank you. Thank you so much. It, it, it wasn't instant. It, it took a while. Just like stuff of recent years, it's taking me a while to figure out how to write about it, you know, and, and even weather, you know, it was such a, like you said, shocking, but intimate and just powerful kind of mysterious encounter for me that I just knew I had to, had to share it. I, I, it wasn't as instant as running to the house. You know, I had work to do still. Uh, but but it, soon thereafter, I'm sure I started taking notes and figuring out what to, you know, what what shape it would take. And then that took years. And I mean, shape is a very appropriate description because, you know, you've got your task, what you're doing, your work, and then you've got the intruder and then you've got the contact between the two of you, and then you've got the last line is just is devastating and devastatingly true. So yeah. okay, uh, you've converted me so far, but now we, uh, we since we're low on time, we're going to get to your newest poem, which isn't in the book Seed, um, which you've been reading from, and um, this would be for sure a pandemic poem and a poem of um, this horrible year and what everything we've been going through and to be able to make a poem out of it, it well I'll wait until you finish reading it so if you'll read it and please tell us the title and explain the title because that was a new vocab word for me. Okay the uh, the title is uh, Obad, A-U-B-A-D-E and it's a kind of tradition in poetry for that comes from the French, and it's simply a poem that's set at dawn. Um, and most most poets just name a poem like that, just name it Obad. I have a subtitle, Spring 2020. Um, <clears throat> you Not usually or often, maybe originally, they were uh, poems spoken to a lover being left behind in bed. Um, you know, the, the speaker of the poem has to get up and go on with his or her day, usually his, traditionally. Uh, talking to the lover he's leaving behind, but not all poem, not all robots do that, and certainly mine does not. Uh, so we'll talk about it after I read it. Again, happened right here on this porch. <laughs> um, so, Obad, Spring 2020. At first light, they start. Removed by two hours from New York, I am a mute witness to the latest scourge. On the computer screen, digital images and sounds of the breathless, the dying, the voices of millions gathered in revolt. The news collects inside like the heat of day and at night I escape to the porch where it is cool and I slide into sleep. Morning brings birdsong. From my perch amid the trees, only the screen between me and the world. A catbird with its meandering melody, then a robin. 
a distant beery spirals its song, a wood thrush downhill, its fluting cousin, whistle of a cardinal nearby. So many, a chorus, a throng, I don't know all their names, Oriole, Tanager, Wren, their names. There are so many. Brianna, the sound of eight shots. Ahmad, George who cried, Mama, Tamir, Freddie, Sandra, on and on. They are loud in my head. They echo through time and the forest. They drown out the creek. It is not yet 5 a.m. I am saying their names. You're saying the names of um, not only people who've uh, been killed, but also the names of uh, the pandemic and uh, and the misery and and what we've all been through and um, did this come from a place where maybe you were having a hard time sleeping or um, because because you introduced uh, dawn to as the title yeah yep yeah, I it was first light here is about five uh, a little before five and the birds are always the first up. Uh, sometimes I can go back to sleep after, sorry for that noise, on my little country road. Um, uh, the birds are first, and sometimes I sleep through them, sometimes I don't. Uh, but this morning I, I couldn't. You know, the, the, the birds started working a way, a different, a different way in my head, and I just had to get up uh, and, and, and write. Um, yeah. So it was a kind of culmination, I think, of what I had been witnessing. But this one you wrote pretty quickly because, you know, you said like the uh, the one about the ha the raptor one took you years. This obviously didn't take you years. Did you feel no. that there was an immediacy that you had to uh, get this done during the plague year? Yes, I, I, I did. Uh, I I mean, as you having read the book. Most most of mine aren't overtly political, uh, and I've certainly I've been looking at ways and ways that poetry can work in the world, and and wanting to join a larger conversation with with my poems, and 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 this felt like like a kind of way in or an attempt um, uh, at joining the conversation that we're having right this minute. Uh, so yeah, it felt really crucial to to get it on the page and and I've you know been through lots of revisions but um uh they've happened quickly <laughs> well it certainly uh spoke to me and uh I'm afraid we're we're not going to be able to speak to each other much longer because we're running That's, out of time but um I want to thank you so much David for um for being with me today um it was Truly lucky and serendipitous that I met you um, at a reading that our mutual friend Renee Sims was doing in New York just a year ago before we'd even heard of novel virus or coronavirus. Um, I hope you'll keep working and sharing your work and um, 
I'm going to uh, remind viewers about your book. And thank you so much for being with me today, David. Thank, thank you so much, Eileen. An honor to be your first poet. <laughs> <laughs> Books to viewers. Uh, this, uh, two of the poems came out of David's book, Seed, which is available through Amazon. And there are, it was very hard. As you can see, I've got mountains of yellow stickies for all the poems that I really did like. So now I'm not a poetry hater anymore. I'm a poetry appreciator or a good poetry appreciator. So thank you so much for joining me today. And keep reading. Stay safe. Stay healthy. Have a good night.